The following episode of TOEFOP is rated MA for mature audiences. It may contain sexual references, time travel references, allegations of bin misconduct, and mild coarse language. TOEFOP advises that this episode is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15 or anyone who thinks a comedy conversation between two old mates sounds like a terrible idea for a show. Minors must be accompanied by a parent or guardian. This is John Deke speaking. Everyone relax. This is Tofop's summer series, a best of. I'm Charlie Clawson, and we're in the final week of our best of compilations, mainly because we probably could not scrounge up any more clips and and, and with good conscience claim that they're the best of. Uh, but this is a pretty uh, general topic, easy topic, uh, and very familiar uh, topic for anyone who's listened to Tofop. It's TV and movies. We often have a lot to say about TV and movies. Um, we dedicated an entire uh, a compilation episode to conversations about Top Gun Maverick because that was the movie we discussed most this year. Um, a week after I saw Top Gun Maverick, I saw a film that I felt was almost like the spiritual and uh, creative opposite of Top Gun Maverick when it comes to tentpole movies, and that was Jordan Peele's Nope, which I loved. Everything I disliked about um, Top Gun Maverick, I loved about uh, nope. And I know that some people have some mixed feelings. Podcast Mike himself, the man who is cutting this very episode, uh, he was not so fond of Nope. I hope, Podcast Mike, that you revisit it with an open heart and realize it was a terrific movie. Uh, but this is me telling Will all about Nope. <laughs> I went and saw um, Jordan Peele's new film last night, uh, Nope. Oh, yeah. What did you think? I really enjoyed it. I really, really oh, yeah. liked it. Okay. It's been getting mixed reviews. In the same way that I did not like Maverick because I think it just delivered everything that, you know, it, it, everyone seems to love at the moment. It's like Nope tries to do the complete opposite. Like it's, it's a, definitely like a, like a tentpole film and it's trying to be, you know, a spectacle movie. But I think Jordan Peele makes a deliberate attempt to give you something that you haven't seen before. Like he's trying to subvert kind of expectations and stuff. And I... Loved it. Like coming off the back of Top Gun Maverick, where I felt like everything was so spoon fed and like, God, like, stop telling, stop, like, seeing Top Gun Maverick is like having someone sitting next to you, elbowing you in the rib, saying, Hey, remember this bit? Hey, do you remember this bit? Hey, remember that? Remember this? You know, when he says that, remember this? Whereas Nope is more like, Hey, we're just going to throw a bunch of shit on the screen and we're not going to explain it. And you try and work out what we're saying or what it is. And we're not even really going to tell you what the, the end of the film is, but there's going to be no, there's going to be no exposition. There's going to be no moment where someone comes out and says, well, this is, you know, this is what's been going on the whole time. You just work it out. There's some metaphor and symbolism and stuff. So I, Loved it. Like, but then I, is that how they came up with the movie when they were pitching it and the studio heads like, so what's the uh, ending of the movie? Is it going to have an ending? No. <laughs> uh, is it going to have a, like a plot that everyone can follow? No. Well, is it going to have any popular superhero IP that we already own? No. Well, this is just going to sound like uh, I'm the biggest, you know, bleeding heart lefty SJW. But the fact of the matter is there was no lead character that was like a straight white man. Like, you know, okay. the two lead characters are African-American. How will I relate to it, though? One then? of them's... How can I actually go and see this movie and relate to it if there's not, like, a straight white man in it? It's, but it's just, like, thank God, like, that you're seeing uh, stories and perspectives on, like, a mainstream movie from a different point of view. And then, like, even um, someone was saying to me last week, because I was talking about how great Prey was, and it's like, oh, yeah, did you know that there's, like, five films that are all, like, about Indigenous cultures that are, like, the top five films in the world right now? And then... You know, uh, Squid Game was last year's biggest TV show. And it's like, oh, well, I guess that is the reaction to the fan service we've been talking about. There is kind of like an alternative being offered up, but maybe it's just not, it, it hasn't sort of like captured, well, maybe Squid Game was a bit of a phenomenon, but hasn't sort of infiltrated as widely as like Marvel or something like that. Well, what we might be seeing is that the Hollywood, you know, version like, you know, the cultural imperialist Hollywood version of what movies and entertainment are, you know, now that the barriers are down, particularly with streaming services and us being able to, like I saw, um, I haven't, I've only watched about the first 15 minutes, but it's a, um, a Bollywood film called RRR. Oh, yeah, heard Have you heard this. of this? Yeah, yeah, it's meant to be amazing. Oh my God. 
Someone sent me just a link. I don't know if it's available yet, whether it's at the movies or whether it's on streamers yet. I haven't had a chance. Just a friend of mine was like, just watch this 15 minutes and tell me you don't want to see this movie. And I watched the 15 minutes and I was like, that 15 minutes is better than most movies that I have seen recently. It was so entertaining. It's like this, I mean, I, I don't even know, like it's singing and dancing, but also like, an action sort of superhero Marvel. Like, I mean, I, don't, I, I honestly, I don't really know what the, the movie is. I only saw like a little bit of it, but it looks fucking amazing. And mm. I think that you're right. It is, that's where you're going to see it. You're going to see it coming out of like South Korea or are you going to see it? People, you know, obviously the Scandinavian, you know, murder dramas and those sort of things have been big for a while. And the internationalization of what, yeah, there was that bank heist uh, show that was very popular that was I, I i didn't see but everybody seemed to love and um again you know different sort of art from different countries so maybe what you'll see is hollywood becomes mcdonald's you know it's your big you know that's what that's going to be but maybe the rest of the world's going to provide well that what you're talking about that toxic fanboy culture which has said you can't have you know black stormtroopers and you know you can't have girl superheroes and how's an indigenous Native American girl going to take down a predator when, you know, an army of commandos couldn't do it, forgetting that it's all made up. <laughs> None of it really happened. But if that is like, if you're going to follow that logic to, uh, to its end, then, okay, sure. You don't want us to be in that genre. We'll just go make our own films. And those films will do well because there'll be an appetite for them. Because uh, like after I watched Prey, I did go to see what people were saying online and that amongst that kind of, you know, rusted on old school fanboy comic book nerd, it was like, oh my God, like they're forcing this political correctness down our throat. It's like, I don't understand like your protection of these characters in this franchise. You know, it's the same way when Fury Road came out and people were like, oh God, like Max is this bumbling idiot. And it's like, they're just using the, they're just changing the character in the same way, like in comic books, a different artist and a different writer comes in and they're like, oh, let's take this character and we'll turn it into a, a different genre. Like, isn't that what you want? Like, you, otherwise you are just getting fucking Top Gun Maverick. It's the same fucking story again and again and again. So maybe that's what we've done is we've, well, what we, when I say we, I'm talking about the collective. We've opened up a pathway now for it's like, okay, you're going to shut us out of genre. You're going to shut us out of comic books. We're just going to make our own thing. And then they'll come. The audience will come, which seems to be happening, which is good. Yeah. Well, the thing about, like, Fury Road, if you talk about – that's not a character stuck in time. You talk about Top Gun Maverick as being all these characters that are clearly stuck in this period of time, whereas, like, like Max in Fury Road, he's not a bumbling idiot. Like, I know people, like, you know, made that criticism, but he's clearly got severe PTSD, which is, like <laughs> – what that character would have from like experiencing what that character had in the universe that you've created. Like he, of course he would be, his mm. nerves would be completely frayed and shot to hell on every level. And, you know, he just survives yeah. constantly is just looking for a way to move on and survive. So it's just that that character had moved on that people got mad about. But I think that, I mean, like you said, Jordan Peele, George Miller, there's going to be, you know, movie makers within the system, Christopher Nolan probably to a certain extent, who can still take all those big Hollywood tropes and, you know, capacities to make those movies and do something interesting with them. But you're also just going to see a lot of, like, really big, you know, I mean, essentially theme park rides yeah. that are masquerading as movies. Yeah, well, I guess I guess that'll be the, the twin streams, won't it, is you'll, you'll have... Like people, it's in the same way that when reality TV started, everyone's like, oh God, like I can't wait for reality to die. And, you know, jump. no, that's not going to happen. Like it's its no. own genre now. It's created it's not its own stream. <laughs> like, it's a monster. <laughs> that's, the, that's what it is now. So there will always be yeah. like Marvel movies and, and existing IP and stuff. But I guess it's like it's no longer exciting to me because I feel like whatever was. It, whatever had not been done has been done now. And it's also like with the rise of visual effects as well, it's like we've seen everything. We're seeing, you know, the world blow up. We've seen it freeze, you know. there's, there's It's it's not like oh, I'd love to see this on camera because we, we've done it. Yeah. So now we have You've to go. You've seen someone fly realistically, yeah. like in a way that looks like a superhero. You're like, well, what else is there? I mean, I've seen fucking deep know, fakes like... of Keanu Reeves and, you know, Tom Cruise doing karaoke and shit. Like, I mean, I'll believe right. anything. <laughs> 
(laughs) So now it has to come back to story. And I think what I'm realizing, it's like, I just, and I'm not, and I am by no means like an art house snob or anything like that. But just the fact that when I was watching Nope, I was like, I don't know where this is going and I love it. Mm. Like I I could sense in the cinema around me and I did check the Rotten Tomatoes scores, which I think is always like a good... Like the, I think Nope has like 80-something, 85% critics and then like 68% audience, which I think right. is a good sign because Fury Road was uh, like 95% critic and like 50% audience. And like, well, that's good. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a bit of Charlie. That's a little bit of Charlie fuel right there because I think that the, the amount of times I've listened to people, uh, especially with Fury Road, I'd sit on discussions or hear people talking about it where they're just like, it's just a – nothing happens. Like, you know, it's just, there's no dialogue. They just drive from one place to the next. I'm like, if that is your deeper reading of the text, and that's fine. Like, I get it. It didn't appeal to you. You want Top Gun. I mean, technically, that is what they did. Yes. You are right. Yes. They did indeed drive from one place to another and then actually back to the place that they came from in the first place. That is actually technically, I guess, if you're only looking at a Google Maps version of the movie, that is what happened. I'm reading a, uh, there's a book, I think it's called Blood, Sweat and Chrome, which is just like a collection of, um, it's the oral history of the making of Fury Road and about halfway uh-huh. through it. So they interview everyone and it's amazing like how many times they tried to get this movie up and how many times it fell over. But just the way that the unconventional way in which they put it together, like obviously everyone knows it was not scripted, it was storyboarded to begin with. But after they'd storyboarded and they were like, okay, well, we need to start building these vehicles in this world. So they started reaching out to like any artists that they could find online who uh, worked with like um, reappropriating things like sculptors and stuff like that. And so there's this one guy they're interviewing this, who was this like, um, you know, sculptor who lived in Brooklyn. And he said, I just got this like phone call one day from some producer in Australia saying, hey, man, like we're working on a new Mad Max film. Can we fly you out to Australia for six months and you can just build stuff? And he's like, it was the best fucking gig of my entire life. He's <laughs> like, I was just in a warehouse. You'd go into this warehouse, it'd be like 50 mechanics, 30 sculptors, and we're all just going out to junkyards every day and coming back and like, how can we turn these like five things into like a car or like, you know, at the canopy of a roof? And it's like, that, I mean, to me, that sounds like the greatest creative experience ever. Yeah. Yeah, but there must have been somebody in a studio who was like, you know, we can just green screen all yeah. this shit, right? Well, they like, did, <laughs> they talked about that. I mean, there's hilarious stories about the the Doug Mitchell is George Miller's producer, and his number one talent it seems to be uh, like George wants to do one thing, and and Doug would just go to Warner Brothers <laughs> and say, yeah, we're going to do it, and then just not do it. And so like Warner yeah. Brothers like, we can't spend this much, we have to do it on the green screen. So Warner Brothers wanted to shoot for your road on like a length of runway in an abandoned airport just with green screens. And so while like Doug Mig- Miller was agreeing, ag- uh, Doug Mitchell was agreeing to that, he was at the same time loading all the cars onto a ship and sending them to Africa. And so what about this just calling the guy, we just got an invoice for $2 million from some freight company. Did you send all the vehicles to Africa? And he's like, oh yeah, geez, I guess we have, oh, yeah. well, what are we going to do? I guess we better shoot the film. Yeah, in, and they're on a boat in to Africa, Africa now, so... <laughs> Be a pity to not go to Africa to shoot this film, I suppose. It wasn't just about movies this year. We also talked a lot about uh, TV, streaming, uh, to be exact. Um, Will encouraged me to watch the Woodstock 99 documentary. I'd been putting it off for a while because it it made me kind of anxious. Like, I... I, I I find music festivals make me anxious in general. general. Like I still go to them for some reason. And like the first day I always have fun, but then when it gets to like the second day, I always get anxious. And so I always felt like watching Woodstock 99, knowing what happened at that festival, I might, might find it a bit um, distressing. And it turns out I was right. It's a insane documentary. One of the most terrifying um, ordeals for people who were there. Uh, you just have to watch it to just wrap your head around it. Um, but Will has seen the other Woodstock one as well. The other there's another Woodstock documentary, here, and he reckons this is the one to watch. So this is Will and I unpacking Woodstock '99. Hey, I um I finally watched Woodstock '99. Oh yes, yeah. okay. Uh, no, the Netflix one. I haven't I haven't seen yeah. the other one. I don't, I'm not yes. sure what that one's on. Trainwreck. So the the um, colon Woodstock '99. And foremost in my mind was your question of when would you have left the yes. festival? Okay, which I think when would is you have brilliant... left? That's good. Yes. Uh, end of day two. 
<laughs> I think because day one goes relatively okay. That's mm-hmm. before like it's been one hot day. Mm. You've had one vaguely threatening performance by Corn. Mm-hmm. You know, but even most of the people in the interview said, you know, actually it went off pretty well. We realized it was a different vibe. But day two, when it's like 40 plus degrees, you've had one day of like drinking and drug taking. So you're feeling, you're coming down, you're feeling a bit mm-hmm. shit. Can't find any shade. A slice of pizza is costing you 15 bucks. A bottle of water is costing you 12 bucks. Mm-hmm. I think by day two, and then the day, uh, uh, was it prior to Limp Biscuit or during Limp Biscuit that the fucking... <laughs> The, the tower comes down, <laughs> the, one of the sound towers. I can't remember if it was prior or, 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 or during. But I think after that show, I would have been like, yeah, I think I think that's enough. I think there was actually a girl in the documentary who said, we've just packed up after night mm. two and got out of there. I think after that's- they ripped, uh, After they ripped down the sand tower. Yeah. <laughs> that would, yeah. I, would have, I would have been, I would have heard about that at home. My friends would have still been there and been like, you would not believe what happened tonight. They tore down the sound tower because I, or the, the minute there was no clean water and people were dancing around in sewage, I would have been out. That was day, that was day three. Nah, they were in, no, day two, there was already like the water was pretty fucked by day two. Right. Yeah. Well, so the, the, I remember Rage Against the Machine doing Big Day Out in like 2008. When is it? Flemington? Do you, mm-hmm. I think you were there. I was um, there. And people were sca- scaling yeah. the camera towers there as well. Do you remember that? There was like a yeah. bunch of people climbing the towers. And I remember yeah. that thinking it was pretty hairy. But my concern was more that this drunk idiot's going to fall off. Yeah, and die. hurt themselves. <laughs> Not that they were yeah. going to tear the tower down, tear it, tear it down. <laughs> and, and then set it on fire. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. I went into this documentary assuming, because I'd heard a lot about it and, and the other documentary, that it's like, oh, okay, this is going to be like a, a damning indictment mm. on, you know, uh, young white males. You know, they ruin everything. But I didn't come out of it feeling like, I feel like that was like an element of it, but I mm. feel like. It was a pretty decent element of it. Like it was it's a, a huge yeah. through line, but it wasn't the they, only thing. They weren't the only thing. I think that they were the foot soldiers for uh, a very corrupt system. Yeah. Like they were, they they basically were just the SS of this fucking uh, completely corrupt uh, music festival that was trading off the brand name of a of, of a hippie love in. Yeah, and so I can imagine because I went to the Guns and Roses concert that was probably the most mm. equivalent in terms of yes. you once you got locked into this you know barren space with no yeah. shade in 40 degrees and they start charging you water. So I, I got it. Like I remember I was 15 when I went to the Guns N' Roses concert and you know, this was back before kids, you gotta remember there was a time when bottled water wasn't a thing. Like no. if you wanted a drink, you just drank from the tap. And so in 1993 or whenever it was, 94 to 1993, to be somewhere where someone's telling you, hey, you can't drink from a tap, you've got to pay five bucks for a bottle of water. That seemed insane to us. Am I – like, are we missing an opportunity here? Because this Woodstock 99 documentary – I mean, both of them. This one gives you more of a sense of, like, that it was still kind of fun. Like, what I quite liked about this was because they have a whole bunch of people who were there that were, like – it gave a real sense of why people stayed, that they were still mm. felt like they were part of something, that even though things were yeah. going terribly, it was like – They survived it. They survived it, right? And they yeah. like kind of have that memory. You're right. That Guns N' Roses show is absolutely the equivalent of that. You were there. Is yeah. there a documentary in that? Surely there's a, like a Woodstock 99-style documentary in that Guns N' Roses gig there. There because- was a big – there was a big retrospective article written in The Age about yeah. four or five years ago where they went and sat down with like five or six different people who were who were involved in it. But there, there could be. I don't think it was as – there's not as many flashpoints as, as there right. were. Like the, it, it's, the Woodstock is heaps darker. Like as far as I know, there weren't like a bunch of like assaults and stuff happening at – no, but I, I but still it, imagine there was some pretty like I mean because kids were drinking out of puddles and stuff and like you yeah, know, I was it one was, of them. Yeah, <laughs> I remember finding because the because the what the the other thing that fucked up with Guns and Roses was like getting in and out was really badly yeah. organized. So it's just like a few shuttle buses leaving from Flinders Street Station for I don't know how many forty fifty thousand people. Um, and so we were meant to leave. The show finished at midnight or one or whatever it was. And then we were there till like 6 a.m. 
And I remember like just lying on the mud and finding like a half buried bottle of something and just being like, I'm going to fucking drink this. I don't know what I'm so thirsty. I don't know what was in it. And just drank this. Could have been urine for all I knew, which is probably will. Why? <laughs> I now refuse to wait. Uh, can I ask you uh, the question about the Red Hot Chili Peppers playing the song mm. Fire? So they go out there. Yes. And things are on fire and they yeah. choose to play the song Fire. Discuss. It was an odd choice. Mm. And it's an odd choice too, considering like when they were off stage, they had to take a break mm. when all the fires broke out and the yeah. organizer was like, hey, can you go out and settle down the crowd? <laughs> <laughs> I did think that was strange because I got confused. I thought that like yeah. in my my uh, understanding of what happened was that they were one of the good guys that went out and were like, hey, you know, everyone just chill out. But it didn't mm. seem like it. No, it did not seem like that at all. It, yeah, what about the Fat Boy Slim story mm. where he's playing and then these guys come in? <laughs> they've come, come in, in just drive, they stole a bus, driving, <laughs> drive a into van. a crowded like rave, like you know, rave tent in a like a bus. It does, like I've always said about The Simpsons, like what I think they do better than any other show is satirize mob mentality, like how quickly yeah. things descend <laughs> when there are like no rules. And that's what it felt like was just like when people feel like there is no consequences, they just, they'll go fucking, they'll go crazy. I mean, it was, yeah. I mean, like that moment where you're like, let's steal that bus. <laughs> now let's drive it into the fucking rave tent while Fat Boy Slim is playing is, yeah. I mean, it's not people thinking straight. It's fair to say. So if you're the artist, rather than, okay, you're a yeah. punter, if you're Fat okay, Boy yeah. Slim, mm -hmm. like at what point, if you're not being threatened physically, like no one's throwing bottles at you or anything like that, but you can sort of see, God, there's a lot of people mm -hmm. in here and I can't see a lot of security and mm -hmm. stuff. Do you just go, oh, well, I guess I, I know what they're doing? Or do, at some point do you turn to someone and say, hey, like I don't know we should keep playing? Well, I mean, I, you, I, I thought what you could see from him was what the conundrum would have been as an artist, which was, I think we've got to stop playing because this is a dangerous situation. But if I stop playing, is this going to become a much more dangerous situation? Yeah. <laughs> because it feels like me playing might be the only thing that is keeping some of these people from burning this entire place down. I felt like I identified with him the most because – like I always give people the benefit of the yep. doubt. Like I, you know, very rarely think things are going to go shit. And so when he saw that van driving into the crowd, his brain initially he went to, oh, I guess they have a mobile dancing platform. Yeah. This is fun. This what show. a fun thing they're doing here at Woodstock. You can apparently just drive a van into a crowd. This is rad. This place is going off. All right. Right like, about oh, yeah, now. That's what, that's, yeah, that's what I would have done as well. But yeah, that it's just that I could imagine, like, imagine being there on the first day because it did look quite cool on the first day with you know everything was open and and clean and before the, the rubbish mm. came. But it's amazing that within three days, like what had happened, like some of that footage of them driving in the day after the last day, where it's just like completely dystopian, just like smoking ruins and stuff like that, uh, like. How do you, how do you, are you claiming insurance on that? Like, are you insured for riots if you're Woodstock 99? I mean, I can't, I don't even know how that works. Because there'd be like, some kind of culpability, right? Like the owners of that Air Force base must be like, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, to have an airport hangar. Yeah, they're like, we've, we've been to war zones. <laughs> And this yeah. is not appropriate. <laughs> like, we will go to other countries, but we always leave our area tidier than when we found it. I mean, I do remember in 1999 hearing about Woodstock 99 and, like, it's, you know, my memory of it was more like Rolling Stone articles saying, oh, it's like a crass commercialization of the spirit of Woodstock in there. Which it certainly was. It. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the irony of it being on an Air Force base, mm. <laughs> you know, peace and love on an on an Air Force base. And who's the dude 
the organizer who did the original one and and then he's come back you know the guy he's all like he's one of those fake hippies where he's like oh yeah he's like a he's like steve jobs he's like yeah, yeah i'm a hippie but you know he's obviously just an ardent capitalist well you know what i so there's two guys in particular from the original woodstock right so there's the hippie dippy long-haired you know curly haired guy yeah. curly haired dude you know like like you said he's got that very much that steve jobs sort of you know um ethereal you know, hippie for humanity, but clearly trying to make a heap of money. And then there's the other dude, the one who's interviewed a lot more, you know, and like should stop talking, should stop being in yeah. these documentaries because every time he opens his mouth, he makes the situation worse. Like he says things out loud that he like, I shouldn't be saying, but if he is saying, should only be saying behind closed doors. Like he's the one who's constantly, every time they bring up like sexual assaults, you know, mentions that, yeah, but the women had their tops off and you're like, <laughs> yeah, 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 but. Again, why is someone letting you say this out loud? Why did you agree to be part of this documentary? Yeah, and then it's like the the limp biscuit of it all. Like, yeah. th there's one journalist who I think he he was the young videographer uh, yeah. at, at the time in '99. So this is what's cool about th this version. If you've only seen the documentary version, the other version is this one. Obviously, is told through the eyes of a lot of people who were there in the first place, and a lot of these people have footage whether it was like personal footage that they were taking or in this case like they were a journalist working on you know like the actual event and they have like footage from the time and could tell the story i thought that was really compelling about this this version of it yeah and, and so one of the videographers he's sort of telling um because the flashpoint was i guess day two when limp biscuit played their set and that's yep. when everything fucking went crazy and he word for word repeats like Fred Durst's little preamble before break stuff. Yeah. And it's like, because they keep cutting back and forth between Fred saying it and him saying it. I'm like, oh my God, like how significant was this moment in your life that you have like memorized these words? But watching it again, I sort of feel like, yeah, but it's Limp Biscuit. Like you invited Limp Biscuit to this show. Like Limp Biscuit just did what Limp Biscuit do. I'm not saying that, you know, Fred Durst couldn't have gone out and calmed the crowd down, but what do you expect? Yeah, it's not. <laughs> what he, do you he's, not, he's not Sting. No, he's not the man for a calm this situation down scenario, right? Like, yeah, you bought. Yeah. like that's. I I agree with that. That like you are expecting someone to not be what they are. The problem is that you had Limp Biscuit. It's not like they. Mm. Well, this is the difference between like what's the song called? Break? Is it called Break Things? Break stuff. Break, break stuff break right? Stuff. Like. At least that's their song. You knew they had that song. They were probably going to play that song. They probably played that song at every other live gig that they've done. They played break stuff, right? So, yeah. like, that's the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They did a cover of Fire. That's not even their song, guys. Like, I mean, you don't need to drop this one in. No one's yeah. going to miss it. And how's uh, Gavin Rossdale coming out after Corn? Corn tear up the first yeah. night. And then little Gavin, shirtless Gavin Rossdale. <laughs> Comes out with his fake Pearl Jam band, Bush, to do that set. I actually was like, I, I actually, I had such a like a moment of cringe when it's like, oh no, like here comes shirtless Gavin Rossdale on the, like the crowd is so fired up after corn, and out comes Gavin Rossdale and Bush to play, and they open with one of their sappy kind of like soft rock songs. I was like, oh god, is this when it happens? Is this when the crowd goes crazy? That's what I thought was going to happen, but actually. Yeah, me too. Like, that's what I thought that story was going to be. And then, like, yeah. and I am now the guy who plays Gavin Rossdale because Gavin Rossdale was killed by white teenagers that day. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought this was actually going to be like. But it, I actually came out of that with a little bit more respect for Gavin Rossdale. I was like, oh, you... You calmed him down. Calmed him down. I mean, you actually did the response. You, as opposed to so many other people over the weekend who had an opportunity to do the right thing, you went and out there and tried to do the right thing. Well, I thought there's a really telling moment when um, they're backstage with MTV, Limp Biscuit comes straight off, and like one of the first things <laughs> that Fred Durst says is, it's not our fault. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't do it. He's the, like, I didn't do it, kid. It, when the, it's the first thing that you have to say is, it's not our fault. I don't know what's going on. None of this has anything to do with me. Um, no, I didn't sing a song about breaking stuff. Absolutely, I did not. <laughs> Yeah, or telling all the kids in the crowd to gather up all that negative energy and just let it out. Yeah. 
not my fault. Yeah, man. It's, uh, I didn't get as anxious as I thought I was going to because I'd heard a lot of stories about it. And I'm like, oh, like I, th- I found the Fire Festival documentary more anxiety inducing. Like the idea of being at Fire Festival, I thought uh, that would. That I, f- I feel like the original documentary is more anxiety inducing than this series because okay. with this series, because it's just told at a, a slightly different pace, you have that breakdown of other people telling their individual stories and their own takes on it that it doesn't feel as like that first initial documentary. When I watched that, I was like, it really did fuck with me. I was like, I don't think I could ever go to a music (laughs) festival again based on how I am feeling watching this at the moment. It did make me so nostalgic for the nineties though. I was just looking at all the fashion. The music, I love, and I was like, "I love that oh. you're the person who watched that and just said mm, nostalgia. <laughs> Take me back to these good times." I really did. It's part of my identity crisis. I'm just like, "Oh God, the '90s, man! Yeah. It was a it was a time when when you could burn down, you could tear down a light tower at a concert, <laughs> and it was considered a. I mean, there is that amazing moment where uh, someone's an amateur footage of like these fucking bogans." or American equivalent of Bogan's just like tearing down this mural. Like, you know, there's just like miles and miles of this beautiful artwork done by artists on plywood. And these guys are just ripping it down. And there's some dude filming it going, woo, woo, this is history. <laughs> woo, woo, this is history. And again, it's like one of those Simpsons moments. It's like, oh, my God. What do you most miss about that period of time, do you think, if you are nostalgic about it? Like what is it about that world that, you know, isn't in our current world? Uh, I don't, it's, I don't think it's about what was in the world. It was more where I was at at that time. Right. I think it's more about the fact that I was discovering all these bands and I, and I sort of, you know, to me, it was a mixture of cinema and music. It, they were the two things I was into. And it was like the indie film boom, you know, it was like Tarantino and Kevin Smith and, you know, being John Malkovich and, and then it was the music and I don't know, it's just more, you know, you, that's what, that's what happens in life is you have a period of time where you feel like the world was great and full of possibilities. And then you do your best to stay in that bubble for the rest of your life. (laughs) And that's why we're in the cultural vacuum. Now, if you know anything about TOEFOP, you know that the celebrity who has surpassed Adam Sandler as our most often referenced and talked about celebrity is Dwayne, the rock Johnson. And, um, Look, this conversation is dated wildly. Um, you know, this is a, a discussion in the lead up to the release of Black Adam and the catchphrase, the hierarchy of power in the DC, of, in the DC universe is about to change. Um, we sort of speculated on what was going to happen with Black Adam. Well, now we know. Now we know that DC have no plans to make a sequel, that The Rock is probably out at DC. Um but this was more a more innocent time when we really marveled around the marketing tactics and and the brainstorming session that came up with such a clunky corporate speak uh, uh, logline for a movie. Uh, so this is Will and I talking about The Rock and Black Adam. I don't know if you know this, Will, but the uh, hierarchy of power in the DC universe is about to change. It is about to change. <laughs> so uh, Black Adam, uh, they're, they're they're prepping, and it's such an interesting. He's such an. I just find him fascinating, obviously. But so most celebrities post, you know, stills from their movies and like promotional material and stuff. He's posting stills and videos, not of promotional material, but the meetings behind the creation of the promotional material. Like his last four posts have been videos and photos of him in the Warner Brothers marketing meeting where it's like him sitting, like it looks bizarre. He He's so enormous. He's sitting like at the end of a boardroom table in like this polo shirt that barely fits, just like towering over all these like executives who are sitting on this board table with all the Black Adam merch there and, you know, on all the screens surrounding the boardroom table are all the different kind of, you know, marketing points that they're going to make and billboards and shit like that. And then there's a really long description underneath where he describes their attitude towards marketing that, you know, they're not going to try and, break it down to specific countries. They want to do a global campaign so everyone feels included. And I'm like, it's bizarre that this is what he's marketing. He's not – most entertainers don't want you to see behind the curtain. They don't want you to see how the sausage is made. He's like, hey, come in. We'll show you how we're going to sell you this ultra-commercial product. But like, this is how – I mean, it's, it's almost cynical in a way, right? They say this is how we're going to get your money from you. 
Well, look, one thing I've learned from doing 15 years of Gruen is that explaining how advertisers trick you into buying stuff does not stop people from buying stuff, you know. And I think that the, I think there's actually is it cynical? It's honest. He's at least showing mm. you how it all works in a way that all these other people who are doing the exact same thing aren't. But I also think this is one of the rare occasions where like I know that like actors have played obscure superheroes before, but if we're talking about the idea that the entire hierarchy of the DC universe is about to change, right? We're talk but the rock is a bigger character, a bigger recognized piece of IP than Black Adam is, right? This yes. is one of the rare occasions that, you know, so if someone plays Superman, if someone plays Batman, no matter how famous that actor is, like Ben Affleck is a very famous actor, but he is not more famous than the character of Batman. Like normally the character is still bigger than them. It, it, you mm. have to get down to the more obscure superheroes, which I guess Black Adam is. But yeah. in this situation, Charlie, I don't know if you've heard, <laughs> I believe in a hierarchical structure in the DC universe, <laughs> Black Adam's going to be ahead of Superman and Batman. It's all about to change. But at the moment, they have to transition the Rock's global worldwide brand appeal into mm. Black Adam's appeal. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing in these photos and videos, like the way he, like whoever his marketing team is or his publicity team, the way he's got his energy drink brand always like conspicuously placed in the frame. There's a shot at the end of the meeting where they're all toasting with his tequila brand, like mm. always be selling. <laughs> like that's the rock. <laughs> Abs, <laughs> always be selling. Yeah, it's not can you smell what The Rock is cooking. It's like can you sell what The Rock is cooking? Because <laughs> he's been cooking up a whole bunch of things and he needs you to sell them. I get a feeling looking at all that shit that this – I think it's – I don't think it's going to bomb necessarily as in, you know, it's not going to make any money. But I do not think this is going to work. I was just looking at everything about it. I was like there's no, there's no magic to this. Like there's no kind of excitement or, or – because I understand what he's doing. Like it's in the same way people – like if you do a podcast ad and you, you know, say, oh, here's the ad, and we read it and you joke around, people are like, okay, well, that's advertising I can get into because you're being transparent and honest. And that's, like you said, you know, he's being honest and you feel like you're being welcomed into his world. But I think it's missing the allure of why people go to the movies, you know, like I want to be taken to another place, not go, oh, there's The Rock. I guess the hierarchy of power in the DC universe has changed. <laughs> but I, I think that's not correct because really? – the Rock is pretty much The Rock in every movie that he makes, and he is also the highest-grossing actor in the world consistently. So just based on that alone, I just don't think that what you're saying can be true. Like if, if people are willing to like pay millions and billions of dollars to go and watch The Rock run around a jungle again, I think they're, they're going to do the same thing for this movie. I believe, Charlie... The hierarchical, hierarchical structure of the DC universe is about to change. Now, if you are a keen TOEFOP listener, you may remember that we did an episode discussing if Will had to go off grid, would he be able to do it? Um, and how we could continue doing TOEFOP if one of us was living off grid. Well, then it turns out there was a TV show on Channel 7, I believe, called Hunted, in which people tried to evade um, capture uh, 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 you know, by people who had like all the surveillance equipment in the world. Will was a big fan. I still haven't seen it, but I'm very familiar with the show. Um, but Will takes me through Hunted. Okay, so here's what I I studied Hunted. I was so repulsed by that show and the idea of that show and our surveillance society and like the glorification of it. But I also could not stop watching it, and mostly it was within mind. How would I go in this situation? And I've learned a lot, Charlie. Firstly, I've got to make friends in the seek community because when it comes to a game of hide and seek, you you need a seek on your side because they are the nicest people and so happy to just. You mean the religious sect? Yes, seek. Right. They are okay, right. <laughs> honestly the greatest people and very much up for looking after somebody within their own community. So, firstly, in this scenario, one of the things I really want to put in place at the moment is friends in the Sikh community. I know that's like, okay. it seems like a weird one, but I'm just going to try to make some friends in the Sikh community. Well, they we... were out here after the floods in the Northern Rivers. They drove their food truck up here that's and right. handing out food. So it's a good chance you could. If there is any Sikhs who listen, 
to this podcast. I would love to just like, you know, can you give me an intro into the community? That's, that is one of my big takeaways from it. The second thing is that you need potential to be able to change your appearance. Like that's something that is a, a really big thing because, because there are so many ways for you to be observed. Like I'd never really thought through disguise as much. I think we've really got to lean into the idea that we've got to have, be able to have a series of disguises. So like what that means is the most successful people on Hunted, they started with a look that could gradually be changed. So like at the start, I was like, it's weird this show. There's a lot of people with full beards. You know, like on TV, yeah. you don't generally see yeah, it. Yeah. Or like it's the Survivor. These guys look like the people at the end of Survivor, not at the start of Survivor. But cunningly, I realized, well, of course, that was because it's harder for you to grow a beard during the time that you're trying to be away. But what you can do <laughs> is that you can shave a beard during that time. Like, you know, you can shave I love that. the idea of you not realizing that until the competition right. has started and just sitting in your hiding spot, like furiously trying to sprout a beard. And we all know how terrible I am at growing a beard. So I've really <laughs> got to put in a few months beforehand. And then some makeup skills. I think oh, yeah. one of the like yeah, handiest things to have is makeup skills. So like, um, you know, the ability to be able to like, you know, apply makeup, change my appearance in that way is something that I think we really, like I really need to develop. So I think that I need to firstly move a whole bunch of clothes, like a wardrobe full of clothes into the cave. Like previously to this <laughs> happening, I just need to fill the cave. The cave needs to look like a walk-in closet, like a walk-in yeah. sort of like cave. Yeah, next and, top model. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've got to have like some mirrors with lights around them, you know, that sort of thing, so I can do my yeah. makeup properly and a whole wardrobe in my cave. I think that's going to be very important so that I can throw people off the scent. We were right about the fact of getting out in the middle of nowhere. Like – the more you stay in the city and stuff, the more chance you are that somebody or something's going to observe you on their like security cameras and those sort of things. So, so on, on this show, do they yeah. show you how like easy it is to find someone with CCTV yeah. and like ATM cameras and? Yeah, of course. The thing they do on the show that they can't do in real life yet, although shows like this, you know, pave the way for it, is immediately access those things. So on this show, if you were a team of people and you walked into a shop they'd be like, oh, look, there's a security camera in the corner. We're going to access that security camera footage. Now, of course, a Channel 10 TV show can't just ring up a random shop and say, can we have your CCTV camera? And then immediately have it in real time. They would then cheat it for TV, where the camera crew that were following the people around, they'd use that footage clearly to right. yeah, recreate what they potentially could do. So the things that they could do on the show, it would take much longer to access that particular, you know, ATM security camera or whatever it is than it would. So I think we've got a little bit of a buffer, but you essentially need to, the more you can be off the grid. And the thing is, you don't want to camp in the middle of nowhere because of course drones, right? Dro if you're in the middle and if they suspect you're in the middle of nowhere, the immediate thing they're going to do is send drones. So I think a cave, like I think that we stumbled on in a lot of ways, a cave in sort of like a forested area somewhere where you can scavenge for your own needs and supplies, access to a water source, relative cover from like, you know, drones being able to spot you away from any sort of surveillance and keeping those things to a minimum. That was a good approach. So I'm going to say yeah. like we nailed all that aspect of it. I want to film a cave with some different costumes and some makeup equipment. And then in regard to actually recording the podcast itself, this is where things get tricky because like any sort of electronic communication that's where you can get intercepted and monitored so that's that's where it's hard so i still think that some sort of like blind drop off or to be honest meetups but then you're gonna have mm. to throw your tail so yeah. what what they did in this show was they were going they'd go through your social media or whatever and they'd be like who are their contacts who are their primary contacts we're gonna go and like surveil the house of yeah, this person, because they're the most like they're in this area. They know this person in this area. They're the most likely person that they're going to contact in this area. So people are going to know that you, so they're going to be on your tail. So now it's up to your capacity to, do you think that you would be able to, in your day-to-day -day life, 
No. Okay. All right. So no. let's rule that out. Okay. I think I was thinking. I was just thinking about that. Like, is it no. possible to launder the tape? So just say you have to get a cassette tape to me, so I can keep uh, doing the podcast. Uh-huh. In my head, I'm like, what if we could train like a pigeon uh-huh. or an eagle? Uh-huh. Like, you have a falcon. Uh-huh. You become a falconer, and you uh-huh. train a falcon, and so you record you record the, your end of the uh, of the podcast, and then you get the falcon. There's a train it to drop it off at a certain uh-huh. point. And then we get a third party who has no, like maybe I contact them anonymously uh-huh. and say, hey, there'll be $100 in your bank account every Wednesday. You just need to drive to this mm-hmm. field and pick up this package and then just leave it in this other spot. So we just launder it that way, like put another layer in between. So at least if, you know, someone does get tracked or whatever, it doesn't come directly back to me, at least not at first. Okay. So complicated though to do that training is what i would say that i think i feel like that's yeah i feel like that's too like if we were going to do a falconer we might as well just have a drone of our own right no, you that's know a good idea it's got a drone <laughs> <laughs> uh one of the things they did quite effectively on the show was create a false trail like throw them off okay. the scent so for example if I need to get somebody to use, say, like my credit card or whatever in a particular town that was like two hours away. And then like two two days later, you make a trip to that particular town. Oh, yeah. That They think then that the podcast has been recorded in that time. Even though like yeah. you go inside somewhere, they can't get inside. The podcast comes out. They assume it's happened during that time. But what they don't realize is that when you rode your bike to the gym that day, when you went into the gym, you ducked out the back of the gym into the bushes where I was waiting and we just sat in the bushes, recorded a podcast. You went back into the gym and then just came out the front all like sweaty and stuff. And they didn't know that we recorded a podcast. How about we set up a fake live show as like a sort of speed style. So sure, we have to do it early. So we know you've got like 48 hours. So we go into the bushes, we set up cameras and we record a bunch of live podcasts Mm -hmm. and then we make an announcement that, oh, we're doing a live TOEFOP. And so the people hunting you are like, oh, great. Well, we'll just wait for the signal. And so we, you know, we put a, we use a VPN, fake IP address. We play the episode through that VPN, through that IP, uh, uh, um, uh, through that IP address. And so they get taken. They think they're going to like, you know, the woods in Tasmania uh, or something like that. Yeah. That'll work once. Yeah. Right. And then after that, they're going to be like, well, he's wearing the same T-shirt. They've pre-recorded all of these. Yeah, but that's fine. Like that gives us, if we pre-recorded a whole bunch of them, that then gives me a couple of like months in the cave, right, to come up with another well, plan. No, like, uh, <laughs> well, let's be honest. Like, we pre-recorded three. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we get tired. We've got other things we need to do. Right. You've got to get a wardrobe moved into a cave. You've got things to do. So like we pre-recorded three. So we've got, like, got that's still like a month's worth. Well, that's still like three and a half weeks. I've got three and a half weeks to come up with another Do you really plan. think that your hunters are going to wait a week to see when the second episode comes out before they make some inquiries? I think they would investigate the first one, realize they've been duped, and then they would just recalibrate. Their How attack. would you go under questioning? So this is like one of the most important things that I've realized is like a lot of this entire plan depends on your capacity to hold up your end of the story when you've got a bunch of like officials like questioning you hard and like, you know, like making threats to. It's funny, like, like two weeks ago or three weeks ago, I would have been like, oh, terrible. But I've been watching a lot of leftist, um, you know, slash socialist communist uh, YouTubers lately who are very uh, anti-cop. And, you know, a lot of them will play videos of like ordinary citizens, like this is how you respond to questioning by yep. police and you don't have to give them this and you don't have to give them that. And I watched this video of a teenager, uh, like he was a teenager in somewhere in the States and he flipped off a cop car that drove past. Oh, yeah. And the cop came by and, you know, was harassing him and then called for backup and they were trying to arrest him. And this kid knew his shit so well, was just like, you can't arrest me. I can fucking flip you off. That's free speech, First Amendment rights. I know what I'm doing. And the cops are like, you're creating a public disturbance. It's like, hang on. I didn't create the public. I was walking along the street. You pulled the car over. You, this is the disturbance now. What you cops are doing now, this is the disturbance. And the cops are like, well, we're going to arrest you. Like, For what? Wait, fuck you. Fuck you. It starts like, just like, and I'm like, oh my God, this kid is amazing. So if I could just summon some of that kind of, that, that energy of that 17 year old fucking socialist that I saw on YouTube, then yeah, yes. I could probably do it. I mean, that's who you really need. 
like on your side in yeah. this scenario is like one of those or that a like, cocky teenager just a cocky teenager who doesn't give a fuck about authority who's just like what are you gonna do about it fuck you he was literally calling this cop a motherfucker to his face you can't do it motherfucker i know my law i'm a lawyer i'm actually like a doogie ha- i'm like have. a doogie hauser of law i actually know my shit back to front for this scenario <laughs> fuck you yeah that's right All right, we're at our final clip of this best of a compilation. Um, TVs and movie, uh, we'll finish in a real downer. That's <laughs> not a real downer, but a film I just didn't like at all. Uh, for me, since The Avengers finished, it's been diminishing returns with Marvel movies. In fact, I think that is the common, commonly held wisdom. And I don't get a chance to watch movies very much. Um, so it's a rare treat when I do. So imagine my disappointment when I sat down to watch Doctor Strange and the Vault Multiverse of Madness. In fact, I don't think I even finished it. I can't even tell you what happens really because I got so bored and found the film so unengaging um, that it really put me off ever watching a, a Marvel movie ever again. Um, Will had also seen it. So this is a, a good example of when we've come on the show, uh, having both seen the thing we want to talk about. So uh, this is Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. I have not dipped into a Marvel film since probably Ooh, like, you know, Marvel. Endgame. And so I was like, oh, let's check out this this Multiverse mm-hmm. of Madness. Uh, Doctor Abu-ha. Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. I couldn't. I couldn't get through like half an hour. I thought it was so bad. And I don't know if it's <laughs> one of these things where what I don't know was if Marvel it? what was it that you didn't like about it? Well, I don't know if Marvel films have gotten worse they or have. if it's just So firstly, let's okay. just acknowledge that they have absolutely got worse, yes. It's it just everything about it just like the the charm and and the casting in of the phase 1 films like they seem to just nail it every single time. They had the it was like the Pixar magic formula. Mm-hmm. But this Dr. Str- everything about it, I'm like, his wig is so fake. Like ben- Benedict-, 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 Cumberbund- Benedict Cumberbatch's wig, it was distractingly fake. And then it was just the- I believe that you, the wig is meant to distract you from his accent, though. Like, I think you yeah. need to be concentrating on the wig so that you're not so- Why is it that when <laughs> English actors do America, they, they do this kind of, uh, they have to get a deeper voice. And it, and, and it's like also, you know, he, he's protecting this teenager in it and he keeps calling her a America. kid. Like he's in- like America, he's her name is. I, I, oh, which I did, not, I did not think was on the nose at all. The, the kid he was protecting his name was America. But I just also, it just, they, it just looked shit. It wasn't exciting. There was no, mm. I didn't find him charming. And then it starts getting into like the, the multiverse stuff. And I'm like, and I'm a nerd and I dig stuff like this, but I'm like, ugh, who fucking cares? It's an alternate Captain America. And now Captain America's Mrs. Captain Britain. And, oh, that's fantastic for, who gives a shit? I don't care. Just give me a story that's interesting. So I did not even make it half an hour, but then. I put on the new Predator film, Prey. Have you heard about this? Hang on, what? There's a new Predator film? There's a new Predator film and it's set in like the 1700s and it's about this Native American teenager who wants to be like a hunter, but like, you know, because she's a woman and stuff, she's meant to, you know, cook and do all that kind of shit. But, you know, she's always hanging out with her older brother and, you know, they go off hunting and they take on the Predator and it's fucking awesome. It is such a good film. The only thing that I think would have made it better is they do it like they speak, they're speaking English. But I, I read about afterwards, there's a version you can watch where they speak in their, I think it's Comanches, that their, their native tongue. And I'm like, oh, I wish I'd seen, that's the first way I'd watched it, where they'd just done it like in the native tongue, because it is awesome. It is like such a good predator film. And it, it's just, you know, they've been trying to, they've been trying to sort of capture that you know, uh, what the original one and what made the original one so great. And the thing that makes the original film so great is it's really subversion on the slasher film. Like Arnie and all his mates, they start off as like these brawny, you know, muscle-bound guys with huge guns, and then they become the kind of trope of the girl being hunted by Mike Myers. By the end of the film, they're getting killed off and their guns don't mean anything. So this one, they start off with that final girl trope, and so she doesn't have any of the weaponry. So it's just more about how the hell is this girl going to overcome like with no modern weapon with nothing how is she going to overcome the predator and it's awesome it is such a good film it is so much fun and you know what's great about it will 
90 minutes long, probably 80 minutes with credits, but like you could watch it in one sitting. There's no fat on it. You don't get bored. They're not doing any fucking fan service. They're not doing this. Oh, because that's the other thing too. I saw Top Gun last week for my birthday. That was a special treat. And I know people love that film. I did not love that film. And I think there's something wrong with me. <laughs> I think I'm broken. But then I see Predator and I realize the difference is like Top Gun, I understand technically well-made and stuff, but I'm just over fan service. I'm over referencing older films and oh my god that's the line from the original film oh there's uh Val Kilmer oh there look his son is wearing the same shirt that Goose like there's all this shit through it that it's like I don't give a fuck they do do one line in the new Predator film which is if we bleed we can kill it I'm like okay I mean I get it you have to do it but that is it the rest of it it's just completely new or at least a new take on the same thing so I haven't seen Top Gun and mm. I keep hearing people talk about how good it is but i feel I, like i'm going to be a bit like you in that yeah. i'm not a i you know i feel like the fan service stuff will annoy me and b i don't think i have enough affection for the original film that i will enjoy the, like it's actually not serving me i'm not enough of a fan for the fan service to be of service to me well i think like it's because uh, i went and saw it with vk mm. And we were both excited to see it. And look, I like the first one, but I'm probably like you. I, I don't, you know, I don't know it off by heart. But you know enough of it. Like, there's enough iconic kind of scenes. Yeah. But it, it feels the need, like, the need for speed. Yeah, but it, it almost feels like a spoof. It is so slavishly, you know, um, uh, dedicated to the original, like like music cues and everything. Like that, you sort of like, hang on, what are they doing? Like a a remake, and then. There's some just bizarre character choices, which I guess, you know, make people happy as an audience member. But if you think about it logically for a second, makes the character insane. So like Maverick in the 30 or 40 years since the first film has not progressed as an individual, like has not grown, still wears the same clothes. Like if you knew someone uh -huh. like that in 40 years was still wearing the same bomber jacket that they were riding the same motorbike, like, wouldn't you be like, fuck, this dude is like, he's stunted. Like, he has an inability. He's having a midlife crisis. He has not got over his 20s. He still dresses and acts like he did in his 20s. And do they not I mean, explore that, though? They don't explore any aspect it's just of accepted. that being. Oh, you know, Maverick, he's just Maverick. He's just like, you know, the name's just the, at all. The, he's the, it's, it's kind of the least Maverick thing to do. Like, like, you know, like just stay exactly the, exact, the same. Stay exactly the same. He's a real Maverick in the way that he hasn't changed in any way. I always think of that line in The Wedding Singer where, you know, Adam Sandler has that best friend with a mustache who's like the womanizer and stuff and he wants to be Fonzie. And then at the end of the film, his friend confesses, look, you know what happened to Fonzie? He got old. No one wants to watch a TV show about a 40-year-old guy hitting on chicks. And that's exactly what Maverick is. And then you Top Gun, it's like, you're almost 60. Why are you still wearing that? bomber jacket and riding a motorbike and acting like, you know, this kind of roguish kind of charming dude who can't get, like, if you couldn't get your shit together in 40 years, it's on you. Like, it doesn't make you some, like, interesting rebel who plays by his own rules. Like, I think that works when you're in your 20s. But when you're 60, it's like, this fucking guy's a basket case. <laughs> never, he never developed at all. He never grew. Like, the one he thing that's grew. essential to human beings is going on some sort of journey of growth and discovery. But they make that his kind of strength. Like, that's yes. the thing that makes him, you know, like, you know, they have to, there's a suicide mission and he gets asked to come in and, you know, lead this group of new young fire, fighter pilots. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing about it, and, you know, this is sort of minor spoilers, but I think from the trailers you can get it. So um, here's the dude from Whiplash, uh, Miles Teller. Miles Teller. He plays, he plays the son of Goose, which is fine. You know, uh, yeah. conceptually, from a plot point of view, all right, so there's some emotional kind of stakes now. Like, one of the students is teaching his goose, and, you know, Maverick feels responsible for the death of this guy's father. And so I would have preferred if, like, Maverick was visited by the ghost of Goose. Well, didn't we pitch yeah. the evil Goose Arises? That was <laughs> that, well, that Goose I'd, never died? I'd, I like the idea of the ghost of Goose. You know, like, ghost I mean, the Goose. goose the, the Goose. <laughs> Like he has this, this goose appears and speaks to him. You've got to change, Maverick. You've got to change. Oh, I like the idea of a remake of Ghost with just an all goose cast. I just call it Ghost. <laughs> and that's it. 
One more week of best ofs. Uh, oh no, sorry, that is it. Uh, that that's the last best of compilation. Uh, we're we're we're, we're going to be back next week. So um, thank you for sticking with us over the summer. We hope you had a good break. All new episodes of Tofop are coming soon, and don't forget, uh, brand new episodes of Two Guys One Cup My Club. Uh, available on the listener app leading all the way into the season proper in March. So it's a good way to keep your AFL fires or AFL adjacent fires burning until the real stuff starts. Um, But that is it. I'm Charlie Clawson. This podcast is a Tofop production. Head to tofop.com for more. Cool things for cool people.